Again, the description of the mutton stew was so disgusting, I might not ever eat again. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I'm your host today, Mark. And once again, we're joined with all of our book friends, Gabriel, Virginia, Corrine, and Fiona. Today, we'll be talking a little bit about historical fiction or fictional history in literature. That could take the form of many different things, because historical fiction really could take any particular element of history, be it something like the social conditions, the technology, a historical period, and make that into a kind of narrative. Anything that's depicted the period that the creator considers important could be a part of historical fiction and become a part of the story. The subgenres may also include things like alternate timelines or alternate histories in which historical events went a different way than they actually happened, or maybe include like fantasy or speculative elements like magic and the industrial revolution. What would happen if you had magic instead of the standard kind of history that we've all come to learn in high school or didn't learn in high school. So in that way, you could sort of say that an author sort of takes the authenticity or the original aspects of that historical time period and uses perhaps some artistic license to make things a little bit different. So it's not always 100% accurate, but as long as it has some sort of informative, entertaining or enjoyable aspect that the audience will connect with, then that sort of is like, could be what historical fiction could also be about in a certain way. So I think we may get started today with, I had a couple of volunteers, so maybe they'll go be the first two to go. Start with Fiona. Woohoo, I'm first. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> okay, so uh, I am also a big fan of historical fiction, but I usually don't like a lot of artistic license. <laughs> so, but today I've um, I've chosen something that's a little bit different for me in terms of historical fiction because I actually chose a book that basically takes one figure who is real and then devises a plot around it that is very not real. <laughs> and, and it was a fun romp. So my story is Clash of Steel by C.B. Lee. And the historical figure is Zheng Yi Sao, the pirate queen of China. So she is a very cool figure who I didn't know about before this. And I am a pretty big fan of pirates. So this was very cool to, to learn a little bit about her. The story actually centers around Shang, who is the daughter of a very successful merchant woman. And she has been left in a little village to sort of grow up educated and away from it all in a safe environment. And that's pretty boring to Shang. She has an amazing tutor who kind of gives her some license to learn what she wants and gallivant around the island, uh, which really works for her because she's not really a sit and, you know, uh, sit and learn kind of person. She wants adventure. So when her mother comes back to the island to visit, she takes that opportunity to try to convince her 
that she should let her run one of the tea houses in one of the big cities uh, and really sees it as her kind of opportunity to travel, to get out of here. But her mom's kind of compromises. Okay, great. Uh, we'll see if you can you can learn to run this tea house in this big city as long as you get betrothed to some family. And she's like, mm, they're both kind of like, okay, I'm going to use this as a vehicle to like get what I want and like hopefully not have to do that other thing. So they're kind of like these opposing views or these, uh, these opposing ideas of uh, how the future is going to go. And the relationship between Shang and her mom is very interesting. Her mom is very icy and, you know, is very proud of Shang, but she, but she really doesn't let her get involved in anything. Uh, she's she's very much a parent who who is hands off. She kind of leaves it to the tutor. Shang is able to convince her mom that she should take her to the city, and this is when things get exciting. She meets on a spirited young sailor possibly a thief and they have this amazing day out trying the street food and doing all the things that Shang never got to do before. Shang develops feelings for An very quickly and they're like a little bit cringeworthy so definitely if you like the uh, hopeless romantic you will love Shang. If you can't stand it maybe this isn't the book for you. <laughs> Although it's usually not my thing and I and I did still find it enjoyable. So then after this amazing day, Shang goes home to be reprimanded and realizes that her prize pendant, which is actually just a ugly hunk of metal, has been stolen. And of course, she assumes it's on. It turns out that this ugly pendant has a lot more significance than any of them anticipated. And it launches them on a treasure hunt to find... Zheng Yixiao, the head of the dragon's mass of treasure. So it's a very exciting book. It didn't really pick up until the last third. So it was a little bit more of a, a quiet book until then, which was surprising, very much about found family. So Shang really melds with, with the crew that she's with, and that was delightful, but not the adventure that I expected. And then the whole last third it all comes in what you kind of expected to happen in this in this great crescendo. So um, it was very exciting. My main criticism of this book is, of course, the marketing. So this is actually a Treasure Island remix. And it's part of this remix series that is kind of cool concept. But I think it's entirely unnecessary for this book. Um, this book, like, it stands on its own. And the connections to Treasure Island are thin. <laughs> so it's sort of like, you know, I know that Treasure Island is sort of has created our idea of pirates and, and, a, and a treasure hunt story. So I do feel like most pirate stories that we read are inspired by Treasure Island. Uh, and this one could have probably just left that out of the, the, the title that is on the front of the book. It totally holds up on its own. But I am very grateful to Treasure Island because although it's not an amazing book on its own, it has created many wonderful spinoffs, including, of course, Muppet Treasure Island, as well as like other, you know, more legitimate Treasure Island spinoffs. And so I am glad to add this to my sort of my list of things that Treasure Island inspired, despite Treasure Island itself actually being quite disappointing. So if you are looking for a fun 
adventure romp with pirates and a little bit, a little, little bit of historical fiction. Something I did appreciate, like the description of all the like the um, the foods and the cities and the boats and the clothes. Oh, she describes the clothes, which is really important to me. And it definitely like gets into that that specific period and time as well as queer teen romance. This is definitely going to be a great book for you. A Clash of Steel, a Treasure Island remix by C.B. Lee. And uh, I am also very excited to next read a Wuthering Heights remix. (laughs) Thank you, Fiona. Sounds like a very interesting kind of multifaceted narrative and the different arcs it sort of goes through, it sounds like as well, like the different kind of periods in the characters development and whatnot so that's an interesting take on the the genre so next i think we're going to go to gabriel i at first when i saw this topic was a little bit was a little bit confused as to how i was going to find a book about it not because of historical fiction necessarily but because when you look up oh i want to read maybe like a book that has historical characters or something like that, that's sort of taken out and then put into maybe a new setting or there's sort of like a fictional element that's added to it. You have to combine weird search terms. And so I was coming up with nothing that applied until eventually I turned to Virginia and I was like, Virginia, do you have anything I can read? Because even if I don't want to read whatever you've come to me with, it's going to be interesting. Because Virginia only knows about interesting books. So this one was one that Virginia pointed out to me, although she hasn't read it yet, but I have now. And we were talking about some of the different very classic people that you can you can grab and how the stories will really look very different, even if you bring in, for instance, a genre swamp. So I was searching. I was looking. Virginia gave me. Uh, this option, and I thought that I would take it. This story transports us to Victorian England in a world where vampires are old news and werewolves are just a problem to be solved. So, you know Richard Burton, like the British explorer? Well, he's been contacted by the Queen of England. You may have also heard of her uh, to deal with this kind of werewolf problem. And so he chooses... He chooses two men, two men to help out. These two men that he he kind of plucks from the riffraff to face down these wolves are pretty much as opposite as you can be. The first is a tall, strong brute of a man. He's serious and he's standoffish, but he's very brave. And the second is a witty, intelligent, scrappy dandy of a man who you might even describe as maybe sort of fae-like. The first man is none other than Bram Stoker, author of Dracula. And the second man is Oscar Wilde, author of The Picture of Dorian Gray. And together, you know, they make an odd duo that's forced to work together because of the dire circumstances. So while the book definitely pays homage to like the gothic genre, and it does incorporate a lot of elements from especially Dracula, Like this could almost be read kind of like parallel to Dracula because so many different references to it pop up and it does borrow a little bit from Dorian Gray. It functions as its own story. So there's a lot of humor that feels 
bitingly in character at times as the two kind of unlikely allies bicker and (laughs) this wasn't my favorite part but they do get into a love triangle and the love triangle is there because it historically happened not necessarily just to put in a love triangle Um, and they act a little bit like scooby-doo investigators and they're sort of like kind of buddy cop hijinks Despite the description, though, I wouldn't say that the book feels super childish or campy. It's more that it has a it has an air of lightness that it really clings to, I think, amidst a lot of the grime of the setting and of the kind of topics that it delves into. And we kind of accompany these characters as they face the darkness and decide that they're not going to let it bother them too much. So the tagline for this book is actually Bram Stoker and Oscar Wilde join forces to face a vampire cult determined to open the gates of hell. So I'm already waiting for the film adaption. The dialogue for it would be hilarious, especially when you get lines like this. So this is Bram Stoker describing his partner in crime. The darkness of this world can crush a man, but if Oscar can face it and emerge as arrogant and vaguely ridiculous as he started, perhaps there is hope for us all. Need I say more? So Stoker's Wild was written and researched by uh, Stephen Hofstaken and Melissa Prusi. So they're a couple who actually collaborated for the work. I'm not sure if one wrote Wild and the other one wrote Stoker or if the whole thing was a joint effort. But either way, it reads with such distinct voices for the two that I'm uh, kind of a bit suspicious that the actual authors like might have ghostwritten it for them, literally. Stoker is a little bit more accurate than Wild, but both are pretty good. The fictional archivists that put together this book compiled it from Oscar Wilde's diary entries, Bram Stoker's journal entries, and various letters, news articles, and other documents that you might find in an investigation that spans years and locations. Uh, So if you're not a fan of that style of book where it's kind of these different sections that are almost pulled from it, this might not be for you, but... I always love a story that kind of feels grounded in reality in that aspect. And as an archivist, I wished that these sort of narratives came together like this in real life uh, instead of having massive plot holes like you'll actually find in the archives. But the nice thing about it is that it really lets those character voices shine through because they're each writing it in their own words and they can really just say whatever's on their mind because maybe you wouldn't I mean, with these two, they would kind of insult each other to each other's faces. But in theory, if they have sort of more secret thoughts or if they want to um, explore it a little bit more, it gives that opportunity. So I almost just saw it as kind of like swapping between perspectives as opposed to anything else. So this book is actually followed by two others in the series, Stoker's Wild West, in which they head to America to help. Teddy Roosevelt with his run-of-the-mill vampire gunslinger and train robber problem, and then Land of the Dead, which just came out in April. And this one features a necromancer, a mad scientist, and I believe Wilde gets a map to the afterlife. So if any of that sounds like fun, if you are a fan of the of playing with different genres and taking actually Odd to say, but less leaps in history than you would expect, because it does still, other than, I guess, like the fact that vampires are running around, like it still kind of feels like a Victorian piece. Like they do, they do a lot to kind of ground it in that. So consider reading Stoker's Wild by Stephen Hopstaken and Melissa Prusy.
All right. Thank you, Gabriel. Definitely a very interesting combination. I seem to notice a bit of a trend we have here with duos teaming up in our first two books. I wonder if that trend will continue. I will actually go next. I will be talking about Werner Herzog's The Twilight World. So those who may not be familiar with Werner Herzog, he's had a very long and storied career in film, documentary, acting, nonfiction writing, opera directing, and now novelist. He has a very long history of blurring the line between fiction and fact in some of his works. He's very interested in what he likes to call ecstatic truth, or sort of like the essence of the matter, rather than representing all the exact specific facts as they were. So he may sort of accentuate or exaggerate certain things while downplaying or omitting others. But he does this in the service of what he sort of considers to be the important, deeper truth of the matter. He is also sometimes jokingly referred to others who have criticized him as the quote-unquote accountants of truth, who are sort of more interested in lining up facts in a precise kind of orderly manner without revealing any deeper truth or insight. He's also been very fascinated with extreme cases, places, and events. So for example, he's depicted deranged colonists with delusions of grandeur or lonely people hiring actors to take the place of lost loved ones or friends. His nonfiction, he's covered Antarctic research crews, solitary man who lived amongst grizzly bears in the forest. His nonfiction writing, he's reflected on his process of making films, such as the film Fitzcarraldo in his book, Conquest of the Useless. He's reflected on the ordeals of making that film, particularly the erratic actor Klaus Kinski. Anyone who is familiar with Kinski knows that he was quite the strange person that was a handful to deal with. He's been in live action films like The Mandalorian and The Wind Rises. He did an English dub voice. So all this is to sort of say he has this very uh, idiosyncratic and wide-ranging interest. And at one point when he was directing an opera in Japan, he was given the opportunity to meet the emperor, but he declined the opportunity to meet the emperor. And they asked him, well, if you don't want to meet the emperor, who in Japan do you want to meet? He immediately knew he wanted to meet Hiro Onoda. And Onoda is the protagonist of the Twilight world. We're given a first-person psychological narrative of his time in the Japanese army at the end of World War II and his refusal to stop fighting and surrender after Japan's surrender to the Allies. There's also additional narration that is very much in Herzog's kind of own unique voice of the snapshot of the jungle and the settings that the novel takes place in. And if you listen to the audiobook, you'll actually will get to hear Herzog himself read the novel, which is probably worth the money you spend on it in itself. So Onoda himself was the leader of a small guerrilla battalion on the island of Lubang in the Philippines and had no contact with the superior officers in the army while carrying out guerrilla warfare. And once the Japanese surrenders the allies, he refused to believe it as true. He thought it was propaganda that was falsified in order to get them to surrender to the Americans. So he kept up his fight for another 29 years before finally surrendering in 1974. Throughout this time, his battalions have waged this very strange guerrilla campaign of agitation against the local authorities. And we sort of get a sense of his inner motivations, beliefs, and the context of Onoda and why he was driven to continue what he considered a kind of indispensable mission and how his belief became very unshakable. It became very set in stone over time. It became even more ingrained in spite of all the signs and types of signs that the war was really over. 
and that he was just carrying on some sort of fantastical kind of fiction inside his own head, essentially. The narrative itself begins in 1974 with Onoda encountering a young student from Japan who has come to the jungle to try and find him. This man is Suzuki, and he kind of regards Onoda almost like a mythical kind of creature that he's seeking to meet because he's ranked him alongside the giant panda of China and the Yeti as the three figures that he would like to meet on his quest around the world of, of Southeast Asia and the other places around the world. Believing Suzuki to be yet another ploy of the Americans to trick him, he's initially distant and untrusting, but eventually Suzuki convinces him that he will track down his commanding officer and bring him to the jungle to tell Onoda that the war has ended and that his mission is now over and to stand down. At this point, we're launched back to 1944 and the beginning of Onoda's guerrilla mission, tasked with maintaining a war of agitation to buy time before the eventual return of the Japanese army to retake the islands that they have lost to the Americans in the Philippines. We sort of given like a series of snapshots of the life of Onoda and his men in the jungle, the harshness of living in the jungle, constantly being on the move without setting down a residence and losing his subordinates one by one. And this has psychological distrust he harbors toward every aspect of the world around him as he sort of sees everything as a sign of the Americans. Like if there's like a remnant newspaper lying around, it's actually just like fake news has been planted there in order to trick them. Or a piece of gum found on a bridge somewhere is like, well, surely a Filipino villager would not be chewing gum and leaving it relying around like that. But a derelict American soldier might do something like that. So therefore the Americans are actually here and we're in immense danger. This kind of borderline paranoid and kind of out there thinking has kind of dominated his life as he believed it was absolutely necessary to distrust everything around him for his own survival and self-preservation. And in sort of typical Herzog fashion, he also ties this kind of seemingly absurd man's struggle with larger ideas about war, conflict, meaning in human life within a vast, uncaring cosmos of everything. It's also a very short novel. So it's very much just like a series of like short snapshots. The book itself is maybe about 110, 120 pages long. So it's a kind of a series of vignettes of this 29-year period and the kinds of experiences and uh, psychological states I was in at that time. So I think if you've enjoyed any of Herzog's past fiction work, his exploration of stream individuals that have populated his fiction and documentary work, or if you just enjoy kind of introspective kind of psychological narrative that goes deeply into someone's kind of thinking and the way they kind of understand the world around them, then I think you'll enjoy The Twilight World by Werner Herzog. So now I think it might be time to go into our uh, existential question. And so for this week, I posed the question to all their book friends. If you could experience or meet like one historical event, person, time period, or anything like that, which would you choose? I love and hate this question because there's so many options. And so I feel like I'd say a different thing on each day, but I've been very into Catherine the Great of Russia lately. So I think I would really like to like, just have a little like meeting with her, like maybe become her confidant. Yeah, she was, she was pretty awesome. So that is who I would choose today. Well, I was thinking about this question. I sort of thought about like what my own personal interests and things like that. So I sort of came to the idea about cinema and cinematic culture. And the very beginning, like there's the, many people date March 22nd, 1895, and a public exhibition by the Lumiere brothers of their uh, projection imagery machine. 
it's sort of somewhat debatable whether or not that's the first public uh, display or not, but it's definitely a his major historical time, his major historical figures. And this is sort of like a nice and tidy date. You can sort of tie onto it as many people that played a later role in cinematic culture and cinematic development within France, as well as just the general time period of late 19th century France. It seems like an interesting place to go to. So that was what I sort of thought most deeply about. I think that would be really cool. It would. It would be interesting also because you could see people's reactions to it because it's one of the, it's, if not the first time, then it's definitely one of the first times. And so people even now try to inspire awe through film or through storytelling. And I think be, being able to see that kind of like unadulterated, almost not unearned because obviously it was very much earned. It was very difficult to make a movie back then, but getting to see that sort of like, pure awe would be very cool. So I was trying to think of historical figures that I would want to talk to. And I think I wouldn't want to talk to most of the people I really like. I might go back and then brush up on my boxing skills with a few of them. If I can just sort of like be teleported and I don't have to get in there, then I might have a few words with Mr. Ronald Reagan or like various other other folks throughout history. I could kind of go on like a world tour series I, I think I could get lots of souvenirs that way. It would be really interesting. But if I had to pick, I think, one event that I would legitimately like to go back to, I am a sucker for modern history. And so I think I would go back to November 9th, 1989. And I would help with the with the Berlin Wall. I think that would be fun. I think that'd be just like a good time, really. It, it seems like there would be like a lot of energy, um, like a lot of like collective action. There's some art involved. Just, I think, a great way to just de-stress after a long day, especially because I already know that it, it turns out well. So, I mean, maybe there, there's some questionable stuff that happens in the midst of that, but, you know, for the most part, it turns out well. So I either go back and uh, go to the Berlin Wall or else do kind of like a world tour of dictators that could be dangerous because I do think I would butterfly effect something maybe for the better because I would get rid of them. But anyway. Okay. My answer is a lot more boring than that. I would probably want to go back to ancient Rome just because I want to see for four years, <laughs> I spent a, you know, all my time studying a language that is dead. I want to see it alive. I want to see people talking. <laughs> so yeah, that's probably where I would go back to. And because I have spent a lot of years translating him, so I would like to probably meet Caesar and actually like hear him talk. So that would be my answer. Very boring. Corinne. What if Caesar had like a very high, like really like, <laughs> what if, what if? We'll never know. My, I, I, I've often thought about this and I'm so like attached to indoor plumbing and things smelling good that there's not a lot of like historical periods that I would love to visit um, because they all smell. They all smell and everyone's disgusting. So as Gabriel had kind of mentioned, like obviously go back and do the, the dictator world tour assassination uh, tour. But, you know, obviously that would have a lot of consequences. So I chose something small and 
maybe not inconsequential, but a little bit smaller is that I would like to visit C.S. Lewis when he was just finishing up his manuscript of The Last Battle and just kind of loom over him menacingly as he wrote that part about Susan going to hell because she liked lipstick. And I'd say, hey, C.S., how about we just don't? How about we just don't? And I think that that would be a positive, positive change for the future. All right. That's a very nice, interesting uh, collection of ranged responses. <laughs> We've touched pretty much all the, a lot of different major periods, a lot of different continents, a lot of different places. So it's very interesting. So I think we're going to stick with Kareen now so she can do her book. Tell us about what she read this week. Uh, are you sure? Are you sure you want this? Well, we're going to go back back in time a little bit to my childhood, to one of my favorite childhood rhymes, which probably says a lot about me as a person and explains a lot about who I am right now, which is Lizzie Borden with her axe gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Yeah, we teach this to children. Children sing this. Children recite this. Children know this, which is, you know, again, explains a lot about our world, a lot about myself and my own fascination with true crime. And no greater kind of fascination in the true crime canon is that of the story of Lizzie Borden. So the facts are these. On August 4th, 1892, the Borden family was mostly at home. Andrew, the father, the patriarch, had come home early from work due to some stomach upset. He was not the only one suffering from some digestion issues. Upstairs, there was also Abby, his second wife, and Bridget, the Irish maid who was at home. They were all violently ill that night before and the morning of. The only person feeling hale and hearty was the second youngest daughter, Lizzie, who had not partaken of the heated, reheated, 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 cooled, congealed mutton stew that everyone was eating for a week. Emma, the oldest daughter, was visiting a friend at the nearby town of Fairhaven sometime in the afternoon. Andrew and Abby Borden are murdered. Andrew is murdered in the study. Abby is murdered in her room. They were attacked not with an axe, as the song goes, but with a hatchet. At some point, Lizzie, the youngest daughter, goes upstairs and shouts, something has happened to father. She sends the maid, Bridget, to go find help, either from the doctor, Dr. Bowden, or to some figure of authority that can help with her father, who at the time is still alive, but horribly, horribly injured. When the officials, the doctors, arrive, they find the father, and Lizzie behaves oddly. She does not react in the way that people expect a well-bred young lady to react upon the news of finding the corpse of her father. Hours later, they also discover the body of Abby upstairs in her room, who Lizzie had told everyone was away visiting a sick relative. Lizzie is eventually put on trial, but not convicted. She and her sister Emma spend their entire lives in the same small Massachusetts town of Fall River, 
despite being ostracized by the community, and even though acquitted in a court of law, many still believe that she committed the murders. So this has become part of American mythology. The name Lizzie Borden conjures something in us. It is almost a myth. And with a myth, you can do anything. You can retell it or reshape it or revamp it to tell any kind of story that you want to tell. You could tell the story of a suffocating insular family dominated by a cruel and harsh father. You could tell the story of the cuckoo of Abby Borden, who came after the girl's father, uh, the girl's mother had passed away and insulated herself into the lives of the Borden and was slowly siphoning money and influence away from the two girls. You can tell it as the story of two powerful sisters struggling against the world. You could tell it as the story of a psychopath, someone who is so fundamentally evil that they easily commit the horrible sin of patricide and matricide without blinking an eye. You could also take it as a feminist tale. Why was Lizzie not convicted when there was overwhelming evidence against her? See What I Have Done by Sarah Schmidt, which was nominated for the Women's Prize Award, is a fairly straightforward retelling of the points and facts of the case. She takes different points of view in the story. Lizzie, Emma, Bridget, and a fabricated drifter hobo called Benjamin, just to kind of muddy the waters a little bit that takes you kind of through the facts of before the case, during it, and some of the aftermath. She kind of tries to give you uh, some suspects. So could it have been Bridget, the Irish maid, who was being forced to stay in the household against her will when Mrs. Borden stole all of the money that she was saving to eventually return to her homeland of Ireland? Powerful motivation. And could she have been the one that was secretly poisoning the Borden family by feeding them? Again, the description of the mutton stew was so disgusting, I might not ever eat again. Was it her that was poisoning them? Could it have been Benjamin, a kind of man-in-the-train scenario, a drifter who was perhaps, or perhaps not, hired by the girl's uncle, John, who had come to visit the day before? Maybe with a promise of some money and some biscuits, he axed off the people getting in the way of John and what he saw as his rightful inheritance. Maybe it was Emma, the oppressed older daughter, always meant to be so good and so self-sacrificing and always take care of her sister no matter what. Or maybe the story was right, that Lizzie, the golden child of the family, had finally had enough and snapped. As a, oh boy, fan is not the right word of this case, as something that I have been very interested in for a long time. She's not really bringing anything new to the table in this story. It is very well researched. And I did love that there was a lot of, like a timeline in the back. And she clearly had a good sense of the, the order of events. I think that choosing to tell it between a bunch of different points of view kind of like lessen the narrative tension because she's trying to make you believe that it's other suspects, but for big fans of the case, come on, come on, come on. She totally did it. Like who else? 
who else? But she does make the story kind of clip along. It is kind of blurbed by Paula Hawkins, um, Girl from the Train. So you expect it to be more of a thriller, but I don't really think that it succeeds in that. What she does really well is maybe the characterization of the two sisters who are kind of in this strange, horrible relationship with their father and their stepmother being, you know, 30 years old, 20 years old, and still trapped at home with absolutely no chance of leaving because of his very domineering personality. And this kind of very toxic relationship between the two sisters that plays out to horrible effects. So if you are new or interested in kind of seeing beyond the very simplistic and factually incorrect children's rhyme, you can definitely pick up, see what I have done, but I will warn you, you will never eat mutton again. And quite frankly, you will never eat pears again because there's a lot of like people biting into juicy pears and it like dribbling down their face. And that's an image that I'm not going to get rid of easily. The murder's fine. The pears, ooh. Thank you, Corrine. Definitely sounds like a very descriptive, image-filled book to say the least, <laughs> based on those descriptions. <laughs> so much vomit. <laughs> so much vomit. Okay, I think with that, we will go to our last book of the day with Virginia. And of course, being the complete opposite of Corrine, as you show, my book is not going to be straightforward at all. Um, so Mark and Fiona knows that I actually picked up this book up for the sports episode. And I've been waiting and dying to tell people about it. But it fits today's episode so well that I decided to wait. And this is possibly one of the most refreshing books I've read this year. And, you know, sometimes, you know, while you're reading in your reading life, you just need that little jolt of electricity. And this definitely did that for me. And it's also a coincidence that last week I talked about Valeria Lewis-Sally, The Story of My Teeth. And that book mentioned this book and this author as one of the characters that she told a story about. And it also happens to be her husband. So yeah, so two coincidence real relations for the two episodes. But anyway, so the book that I have for you today is Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique, and it is translated by Natasha Wimmer. When I started preparing for this episode, I'm like, okay, looking up some online reviews, trying to figure out how can I describe how amazing this book is. And everybody who is a lot smarter than me agreed that there is nothing you can do to prepare a reader for this book. So bear with me when I'm over, probably oversimplifying what this book is all about. So this is Sudden Death is an epic tennis match that is held in the late 16th century in Rome. And this match is not between two athletes, but between two artists. On one side of the court, we have Michelangelo Caravaggio, the Italian painter, the ones who is most famous for his portraits of saints and depictions of biblical scenes, and that he has a, a habit of using prostitutes as models for his pictures and his paintings. On the other side of the court, we have Spanish poet Francisco de Quevedo. He is equally well-known in his country and most famous for his satire. Both of these people are not very nice. They both have a temper. They both are prone to losing control and acting out of impulse. In fact, right now, both of them are wanted for murder. So they're kind of a monster. Eerily similar in some ways. And right now, they're just about to get into a tennis match. But this is not just a friendly competition. This is actually more like a duel. So why are these two in a duel? Well, to be honest, they can't remember. They only met last night in the tavern. 
something happens there. And this morning, when they both woke up with a massive hangover, they were told that they have committed to a duo, a tennis match. So through three sets in the game, we learn about these two men. We learn about their personal history. Who did they murder? We learn about what transpired the night before. Why are they in a tennis match today? But that's not the only story that we will get. Now, Caravaggio is quite the skilled tennis player. So probably he was the one who suggests playing a tennis game instead because he's pretty confident of his skills. And he even brought his own tennis balls. But unbeknownst to him, the tennis balls themselves have a story of their own. You see, the tennis balls used to be made, some of them, from human hair. Allegedly, human hair makes a tennis ball bouncier. And you can probably tell that is why I pick up the book. Once I saw that line, it told me that it has human hair involved. That's when I ran to the shelves and grabbed this book off the shelves. But the balls that Caravaggio have, oh, this is not just any old hair. This is the hair of Queen Anne Boleyn after she was beheaded 63 years earlier. So we get the story of how her hair, after she got beheaded, ended up in tennis balls how they changed ownership and ended in Caravaggio's possession. Cavado himself so has something that involves hair. <laughs> he has a scapula. And this scapula is all the way from the New World, from what we know now as Mexico. This is made from the Aztecs, the last emperor's hair. After he was executed by Hernan Cortes, the Spanish conquistador. And so we get the story of how the Spanish came to the New World, entered the empire, and claimed what would be today's Mexico as their own and refused to leave. So we have got that story. And there's lots of, of course, fun facts, trivia, tidbits about tennis or about the precursor game, because it's not quite tennis as we know it, about Pelicotta. So you got excerpts from dictionaries, excerpts from books that reference tennis. And for example, it being a game that is invented by monks, is really filled with symbolism that is tied to Christianity. A tennis ball, really, when you think about it, is like the human soul. It gets battered back and forth between good and evil. And as you're trying to get into heaven, you always get waylaid by the devil. That's that story and all sorts of like really fun things things about tennis. In addition to playing with history, Enrique also played with the form itself. So we have a section here on Counter-Reformation that is kind of done in a screenplay style between the Pope and the two cardinals. We have email exchanges between himself, the author himself, and his editor, and his editor wondering like where your book is, how you done yet. There's lots of phrases and references to balls of all kinds everywhere in this book. Yeah, just a lot of fun. And I would say a buffet for history buffs. If you know a lot about the history that Enrique refers to, it's fun to just kind of figure out like, okay, like what did he do? Like what is what is real? Um, what is fictional? And uh, what part he embellished and why he do that? Even if you don't know a lot like me, it is still, you know, a throwback to the last episode. Uh, you get into a lot of rabbit holes on Wikipedia trying to figure out like what's going on. And that is also fun. Um, so I think that's where I would say whether this book is for you or not right now, really depends on what you want for your novel. Because if you're looking for something like more like, like Corinne's book, which is more straight retelling, a linear timeline, point A to point B in a very logical sense, then this may not be the book for you right now. But if you love puzzle pieces, if you 
love trying to figure out relationships between all the different stories and all the different parts of history that Enrique is talking about. If you want to feel like the tennis ball that is being like batted back and forth and, you know, like landing in who knows where, because like Enrique would take you all over different continents, all over different history periods, then this would be a really, really fun book to do. But regardless, I think you really appreciate what Alvaro Enrique is trying to do, because what is history but a story that is put together by one group or another. It is the story of the people who have the power, who have the privilege to tell that story. And they get to decide what details to include and what details to omit to paint the story that they want to tell. And Enrique, in presenting the facts that he did a lot of research on and, and his facts and his made-up facts, in the order that he chooses to present, in the order that he chooses to tell us, give us, of course, a different look of history. And it challenges us to just put away that Eurocentric view that we know that we learn from school, um, or like Mark said, not learn from school, and see everything in a bit of a different light. So it is just... A really fun thing. And as he said, you know, there are no, there are few better illustrations of how a whole host of people can manage to understand absolutely nothing, act in an impulsive and idiotic way, and still drastically change the course of history. And of course, him being from Mexico, the whole story about the Spanish conquest is really like a dear to him. And, he, you know, he's trying to figure out like, what, what happened to my country? Um, what's going on? And it's it sounds serious at parts, but it's also like a really funny book. And it's okay if you're like completely confused, you know, like about how everything fits together. Because even in the book, Alvaro and Ricky say, like, you know what? I don't really know what this book is about. It's definitely not just about a tennis match, but I just know that when I wrote it, I was angry because the bad guys always win. And maybe all books are written simply because in every game, the bad guys always have the advantage and that is just too much to bear. So I hope you give this unconventional book a try. It's a breath of fresh air for sure. Give you tired of just your usual and nothing wrong with good old comfort food, but if you want to try something different, give this a try. It is Sudden Death by Alvaro Enrique, translated by Natasha Wimmer. Thank you, Virginia. Another very unique narrative from you this week. <laughs> Definitely something worth checking out if you're interested in that kind of more complex kind of layering of different ideas and different modes of explanation almost on top of each other, it sounds like. You can say weird. It's okay. <laughs> so thank you again to everyone for their the books they've talked about this week. And thank you again for being here with us. See you again in another week. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.